You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian, a CREC church in Cochrane, Alberta. We invite you to visit our website at covenantpresbyterian.ca or contact us via email at covenantcochrane at gmail.com. We pray that you are blessed by the message. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. This week's sermon is on text from John chapter 10. And we're covering verses 22 through 26. That's John chapter 10, verses 22 through 26. And it reads, At that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. For the context of today's sermon... We need to understand where we are in the time frame of Christ's ministry. John begins verse 22 with the expression, at that time, which is one of a few terms or expressions that is commonly used by the Apostle John to tell the reader that there is something different going on. Uh, Namely, that what came before this is not linked necessarily to what comes after. In this instance, we're going to see that thematically it is linked to what came before it, but the time frame is what is different. We're no longer at the Feast of Booze, the feast that is held in late September or October, but we're now at the Feast of Dedication, otherwise known as the Festival of Lights. You and I have probably heard this as, uh, as it is called, Hanukkah. If you scour through the Old Testament, you won't find anywhere this feast or festival. Uh, this was the last and latest festival to be added to the Jewish calendar, and it was the only one that was not prescribed by God. So, where did it come from? bit of a history lesson. Following Alexander the Great's death in 323 BC, his empire was split into four regions with four different leaders. One of those was the Seleucid Empire, by far the largest of the four regions, encompassing the lands uh, from modern Turkey in the west and north to the entirety of modern-day Iran on the east. It was a massive area. This, of course, included Judea and the city of Jerusalem. In 175 BC, a new leader came to power. His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. If you don't know ancient Greek, you may not understand the significance of this name. Epiphanes means God manifest. God manifest. So you could probably guess that there's a problem here already when an emperor gives himself that kind of a name. 
The Jews, under previous Seleucid leaders, were generally left alone. In fact, until Antiochus IV, the Jews' religion and institutions were, in fact, protected by law. This all changed under Antiochus IV. No one knows precisely what happened or what started off the antagonism between the Jews and Antiochus, but it was believed that Antiochus decided for himself that he would be the one who would appoint the high priest. You can imagine how well that went over with the devout Jews. Things got further complicated, to say the least, when Antiochus ordered a pig to be sacrificed in the temple. The blood was sprinkled on the altar, thereby desecrating both the temple and the altar. He further put out the lamp that was called Immortal that burned continually. They had a lamp in the temple that, that was always burning. He put it out. And lastly, he forced both the high priest and other Jewish leaders to eat the said pig. This led to what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt. You can read some of the history of this time period in the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees. There's, a, there's an account there of this. At the end of 165 BC and into 164, so we're talking December, January, Judas, or sorry, Judas Maccabeus led a force into Jerusalem and defeated the Seleucid army. He proceeded to cleanse the temple of the defilement given and he rededicated the temple. He rededicated the altar to the Lord. It was an eight-day celebration that was decreed by Judas to be a perpetual observance. Hence, Jews still celebrate Hanukkah today. That's why during Christmas time, you will often hear Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah, right? So, that is our context. There's three things I want to focus on today. The first is the freedom of celebrating holy days. The second is the clarity of the Word of God. And finally, the words and works of Christians. The word and works of Christians. So verses 22 and 23. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. As we just went over, the Feast of Dedication was not commanded by nor originate with God's Word. Rather, it was a man-made dedication to celebrate the cleansing of the temple and the defeat of the Seleucid army. And where was Jesus during this man-made celebration? Where was he? John tells us he was walking in the temple. He was walking in the temple. He was present, not just in Jerusalem during this festival of lights, but he was right in the middle of the celebrations, right at the temple. He was right at the temple. And if we remember that Jesus is God right? Jesus is God, and that God was the one who ordains or legitimizes religious celebrations. Jesus did not order nor legitimize this festival, right? He didn't. 
Yet, here he is. Not only is he present, but there is no indication whatsoever that he is, in fact, displeased with it. We have no indication that he was upset about this Feast of Lights. Why is this important? Why do we care? It dawned on me as I was reading this that here he is at a feast that he didn't dedicate. And yet here he is. And it's important because there's a number of Christians today, many in our own Presbyterian family, not the CREC, but but Presbyterians as a whole, uh, and others in Reformed circles, including, or may I say, maybe especially the particular Baptists, who refuse to celebrate any days, including Christmas, including Good Friday, including Easter, and so forth. They, they celebrate nothing on the calendar, the church calendar. There's only one day on the church calendar that counts for them, and that is Sunday. That's it. Everything else, no go. What's their reasoning? Usually the best and easiest way of answering this question is that it leads back to what we might call a strict form of what's known as the regulative principle. The regulative principle. The regulative principle, put simply, is that if the Bible doesn't command it, we are not at liberty to do it. If the Bible doesn't command it, we're not at liberty to do it. What the Bible commands, we must do. Amen to that, right? What the Bible doesn't command, we're not allowed to do. This goes over and against the normative principle, which adopts the notion that anything that the Bible doesn't condemn or expressly forbids is allowed, right? As long as the Bible doesn't say don't do that, you can do that. That's called the normative principle. We here at Covenant follow the regulative principle. We are told in Scripture that when we gather, when we gather, here are some things we are to do, meaning we are commanded to do them. So some of these might sound familiar to you, to you as, as you are here every week. Uh, first, we are to read our Bible. Where do we get that? First Timothy 4, verse 13. We are to preach the Bible, 2 Timothy 4.2. We are to sing the Bible, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. This is why we are working hard at learning the Psalms. We are to sing them as commanded by God. We are to pray, Matthew 21.13. We are to administer the sacraments, Matthew 28.19, Acts 2.38.39. We are to practice church discipline, Matthew 18. We are to meet on the Lord's Day, Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. All of these things we do. All of these things we do. And the church should rightly do. Every church should rightly do those things as we're commanded to do. Conversely, the Bible nowhere tells us that we're to perform magic shows during worship service. Uh, nowhere in Scripture does it say, I know, do a skit. I forget which, it was Saddle, Saddleback Church recently got uh, some, some pushback because uh, famously the, 
the husband and wife pastoral team, if there is such a thing, uh, decided that they would dress up, and I forget off the top of my head what they were dressed up as, but they dressed themselves up and pretended to be something. This is during a worship service. This is during a worship service. Where in the Bible can they point to to say, that's what God has commanded you to do during my worship service? You can't. Right? You can't. We are instructed nowhere to have a rock show or whatever other nonsense the church has fallen into. Now, this is an important Put on our thinking caps for just a minute. Does this mean that these things are forbidden to the Christian? Does this mean that things are, th- these things are forbidden to the Christian? The answer is no. Well, they're not forbidden. Christians are free to participate in or watch these things, provided they're not sinful, right? As their conscience leads them. However, They are not allowed to do them and call it a worship service. They're not allowed to call it a worship service. Why? Because God has spoken. That's why. Because God has spoken plainly on what is expected in His worship service. When we gather, this is not Covenant Presbyterian's worship service. This is the Covenant Presbyterian body coming together in his worship service it's about him it's for him it's to him this is all his belongs to him he has provided us with the examples of what to do and conversely he's also provided us examples of what not to do in worship right brief review let's go all the way back to genesis 4 let's start with cain Cain and Abel. Cain's offering was described as deficient. Cain's offering was described as deficient, while his brother Abel's was accepted. Some may argue that it was because Cain offered the first fruit of the ground, while Abel's was the firstborn of the flock. However, We know many of the offerings to God that were in fact commanded by God in the Old Testament were grain offerings. They were grain offerings. I believe the reason behind the response to Cain's offering by God had everything to do with his heart. Not with his offering. It had to do with his heart. Regardless, one was accepted and one was not. They were both acts of worship. One was accepted, one was not. How about the golden calf incident? The people of Israel, while waiting for Moses to come back down from the the mountain, got impatient, made a golden calf, called it God, and started dancing around it. Worship. Here is the God that has led you out of Egypt. Aaron even declared, get this, Aaron even declared, tomorrow shall be a feast to who? To the Lord. Tomorrow we shall have a feast to the Lord. How did that go? If you'll remember, God threatened to kill them all and start new with Moses. He wasn't impressed. How about Nadab and Abihu in Numbers 10? 
They were Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They were Aaron's sons, priests to the Lord. They offered strange fire. No one knows for sure what this strange fire was, but it was not what God had commanded and instead was something I believe is more personal. It was more personal. It meant something to Nadab and Abihu, but they approached with strange fire. How did God receive them? He killed them. He killed them. They were offering worship. And God killed them for it. Did Jesus have anything to say about worship? Did he not reject the worship practices of the Pharisees? Calling them the tradition of the elders in Matthew 15? Jesus was not impressed with the traditions of men and how those traditions clearly usurped what the Lord commanded regarding proper worship. So what do we do about extra days, festivals, and whatnot? What do we do with those holy days? The lesson we see from Paul's writings in both Galatians and Colossians is that binding ourselves to days or feasts outside of what is commanded by God is clearly unlawful. What is unlawful is the binding ourselves to those, right? We don't want to go down the path of the Pharisees, making the traditions of the church binding upon the consciences of the faithful. However, does the scriptures indicate that the church may only gather on the Lord's day? If, if you know where it is, tell me, because I can't find it. It's not there. Not at all. It is binding on the Lord's day. Meet on the Lord's day, unless excused by necessity. But we can see from the book of Acts that it appears as though the early church met every day. The early church met every day. And they participated in the Lord's Supper every day. Was this commanded? No. But they did it. We as a church are free. We are free in the sense that we can host feasts, we can host festivals, we can do worship services, we can do concerts, we can do plays, we can do movies, we can do Bible studies, we can even do scotch and cigar nights. Right? Praise God for those. We are encouraged to gather and to fellowship together. God is the one who defines what is involved in one of these things. In one of them. Now, that is not to say that he has nothing to say about the rest. Okay? But he has everything to say about one of them. If we hold a worship service on a Wednesday, it must follow the pattern set out by God. If we worship on Christmas Day, we must Follow the pattern set out by God. The fact that Jesus appears to have been present during a non-sanctioned feast day brings to light the freedom that we have as the people of God to gather in remembrance of the wonderful things that Christ has done. Most of the Baptistic types and others have 
gone away from the church calendar because they don't see it in the scriptures that we're supposed to recognize those things. We as a church are bringing those back. We, we want to know our church history. We want to know the calendar in order to remember the wonderful, glorious things that have happened in the church. We don't do that because we're commanded to. We do it because, because we want to, because it draws us closer to the Lord by remembering such things. Right? If the Pharisees had made the feast mandatory, this feast, Feast of Lights, Hanukkah, if the Pharisees had made that mandatory, which it was not, Jesus would surely have said something regarding the feast. But he didn't. The fact that John writes nothing about it, but he does mention the feast, and that Jesus was there in attendance, indicates that Jesus didn't have a problem with it. We are free in Christ to celebrate his birth on Christmas Day. And we can do that by holding a worship service. We are free in Christ to celebrate his death on Good Friday by holding a worship service. Christians are not obligated to attend those services. You're not obligated. Unless, of course, they land on Easter Sunday. Then you're obligated to be there. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. There are a couple of things to take note of in these two verses. The first thing I want you to notice is unbelief. First thing is unbelief. We can clearly see by the question put to Jesus that those asking the question are still not believers. They do not believe he is the Messiah. They do not believe that he is the Son of Man. They do not believe that he was sent by God. They have clearly been around him for some time, and yet they still do not believe. The second thing I want you to notice is the accusations, plural. The accusations. There are two here. One is on the subtle side, and the other one is more on the obvious side. The obvious accusation that's being made here is that Jesus has been speaking in riddles. Jesus has dodged the question. He's not been clear in what he's been saying. And it's obvious from the question that he's done so deliberately. The subtle accusation is that their unbelief is a direct result of Jesus' alleged deception. They don't believe, and it's his fault. Where have we heard that accusation before? Remember the Garden of Eden? It's not my fault, Lord. It's not my fault. This woman whom you gave me, gave me the fruit, and I ate. Who was Adam upset with? Was he upset with himself? For his obvious rebellion and sin against God? Nope. He was upset. He was upset with two people. Secondarily, he was upset with Eve. 
She was the one who gave him the fruit. It's clearly her fault. But who gave him this blasted woman to start with, who caused him to sin? God himself. It was God's fault for Adam's disobedience. Sin, listen carefully. Sin is a fault finder. Sin is a fault finder. When you sin, and when you point the finger at somebody else, you are displaying the character of our first father, Adam. Rather than owning our sin, rather than taking responsibility for it, rather than repentance, our usual first reaction is to say, they made me do it. They pushed my buttons. Ever say that to somebody before? Guilty? Somebody else's fault, Lord. It's not mine. They pushed my buttons. If only they didn't do this thing, I wouldn't have said or done the thing that I did. We are so quick to blame anyone else, anyone else, for our sin. And if we're not careful, we even sometimes blame God himself. God, why did you put me in this position? God, why did you give me this spouse that I have? He's so difficult. God, why did you give me this job with these people? As we talk to our unbelieving neighbors and friends and family and so on, what excuse do they give for not believing? Isn't it most cases against God himself? Isn't it most cases against God himself? If only God would show himself. If only God would give me the evidence that I could use to determine whether or not I believe in him. If only he'd do that. See, it's God's fault, not theirs. It's God's fault. Well, as our, fr- uh, our friend, Saiten Bruggenkate, likes to say, How much evidence can you show someone who has all the evidence they already need? How much evidence, how much more evidence do they need? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is none. God has made it crystal clear that everyone who has ever lived and everyone who will ever live has all the evidence they need for God right now. In front of their faces. Romans 1, 19-20. For what may be known about God is plain to them. Plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Clearly seen being understood from his workmanship so that men are without excuse. The Jews ask Jesus to speak plainly. God has created in such a way that his creation speaks plainly of him. 
And yet, just like the creation account for the unbeliever who has all the evidence they need and yet still reject him, they too, the Pharisees, have heard it plainly what Jesus had said about himself and they reject his claims. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Verses 25-26. Speak plainly. That was the request. Speak plainly. Have you heard the expression, be careful what you wish for? How much more plainly could Jesus have been in this instance? I told you over and over and over again, I told you and I told you plainly. You have been following me for years now and yet you say I'm keeping you in suspense? Remember when I told you before Abraham was I am? What was your reaction? You picked up stones to kill me. Why? Was it because you didn't understand what I was saying? Of course you did. Keep you in suspense? What are you talking about? Jesus goes on, and yet you do not believe. And yet you don't believe. Christ's words were true. They were clear. And yet most still did not believe. It seems obvious to me that some people's unbelief can be chalked up to their blindness. Right? Let's call it their presuppositions. They have a certain worldview that won't allow true statements to penetrate their axioms. I get that. I can understand that. What I really struggle with, though, if I'm honest is that when you show them evidence of their misguided beliefs or do as the Apostle Paul did and take their arguments apart via reductio ad absurdum, when you prove that what they believe is ridiculous, yet they still refuse to change their minds. What do you do with that? Mark Twain famously said, it is easier to fool someone than convince them that they've been fooled. Jesus, speaking plainly, says, you don't believe my words. Fine. What about my works? What about my works? Everything I am saying that you find outrageous is in line with the works I have been doing. Jesus turned water into wine. And not just wine, but the best wine. And as a result, Jesus' disciples believed. Jesus healed the nobleman's son in John 4, which proved that he had power over sickness and sin. Show me someone else that can do that. In John 5, we saw Jesus heal the impotent man. This man represents all of us in that we are spiritually impotent to come to him. Yet Jesus, in his mercy and in his grace, calls us in our impotency. 
John 6, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. He rules over material things, and the lesson there is that he is the only one that can satisfy our hunger. He is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. Again in chapter 6, we see Jesus walking on the water. He has power over all the elements. The sixth miracle was the healing of the man born blind, which we've seen in recent uh, weeks. And in the next chapter, we're going to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. What did Jesus' works point to? That he is who he claims he says he is. Namely, that, that he is the Christ. He is, he is the Messiah. What presuppositions did the Jews have that prevented them from seeing this? The Jews were, and frankly still are, waiting for a political or military leader who is going to defeat their enemies and bring in a time of peace. That's what they're waiting for. This is their understanding of what the Messiah is. And Jesus didn't fit their presuppositions of what the Messiah was going to be like. Therefore, they couldn't see. They couldn't see. They rejected his words... And they rejected his works, which validated the words. But because they would not see, they didn't believe. They couldn't believe because they wouldn't believe. Jesus, speaking plainly, explains, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. They couldn't believe because they wouldn't believe. And they wouldn't believe because they did not belong to him, but were of their father, the devil. Jesus had said all the right things. Jesus had said all the true things. And to back them up, he did all the right things. Not only did he do all the right things, but he did things that you and I or anyone else could not do ever. His works pointed to his words as evidence of their truthfulness. And on that note, I'd like to conclude with this thought today. We live in a world of unbelief, right? We live in a world of unbelief. Most people in the world today are not Christians of any stripe, okay? Let's include Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Protestants everywhere. Most in the world don't fit those categories. Christianity today makes up about 30% of the world's population. 30%. And then we all can kind of guess inside that number. We all know that there's many who are what we might call nominal in their faith. Meaning Christian in name only. Right? Christian in name only. As Christians, we are Christ's body. We are Christ's ambassadors. We are Christ's mouthpiece, preaching the gospel of Christ to the lost. We are his hands that do the good works that he has set before us. We are his hands. We are the ones who demonstrate the love of God and the righteousness of God. We pursue holiness. 
Or at least we should. Jesus said much that was hard to believe. But his actions, his works, backed up those claims. His words and deeds were in sync. Right? As Christians, we can often say one thing, but, but then do another. Often our words betray our actions or vice versa. To say with our mouths that we are Christians on Sunday, to stand here and sing God's praises and partake of the fellowship of the saints and partake of the Lord's Supper, right? And then turn around tomorrow and act worldly in our business operations or our workplaces is to play the hypocrite. It's to play the hypocrite. It is to undermine our testimony. It is to be a stumbling block to unbelievers. Or, or it makes Christianity nothing more than, it, than looks like just an accessory on your life. It's just an add-on. Rather than being the central thing, it's an add-on thing. This is a simple concept that everybody should understand. Right? You should understand it. I'm going to give you a real world example. When you get hired on the fire department, the union comes in and gives you a firefighter Maltese cross sticker to put on your vehicle. Right? Proud member of the fire department. And you can display it for everyone. But... The sticker comes with a warning, not, not on it, but as, as they're handing it out to you, they give you a warning. You know what the warning is? If you put the sticker on your vehicle, don't drive like an idiot. Pretty straightforward, right? Why? Because people recognize the sticker. People recognize that that's a firefighter. And by driving like an idiot, you, in that moment, represent all firefighters. The firefighters have a good reputation. And they'd like to keep it that way. It's a simple concept. It's an absolutely simple concept. And yet, I've seen Christians... Declare with their mouths that they're Christians. They sing God's praises. They're so excited they go get tattoos of crosses and and break second commandment violations by getting tattoos of Jesus on them or whatever else. And they're usually displayed in obvious places. So what are they doing by doing such things? They're announcing to the world that they are disciples of Christ. Okay, great, right? All good. And yet the number of times I've seen these very people act and speak in the most worldly ways possible. There's no difference between them and the world except for a tattoo. There's no difference. What message... Are we sending out into the world about Christ 
and about Christianity by doing such things. That's a sermon all on its own. You start thinking about the answer to that question and the answer is just flood and flood and flood and flood. What message are we sending? There are many messages and none of them are good. That's the unfortunate part is is none of them are good. Except maybe you're a bad example. I don't know. 3 John, verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So saints, let your words and actions align. Do your words and actions align. And if not, let's maybe pray and let's maybe come talk and see if we can figure it out. But let your words and actions align so that your testimony is not spoiled. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come once again as, as covenant members of this church and, and uh, to, to be able to listen to your word. Lord, may everyone here, Christians, may our words and actions align. And Lord, forgive us for the times when they do not. You are a gracious And merciful God, and we are so thankful for that, that even when we don't align our words and actions, that we are still, upon repentance, accepted into your your, uh, presence. And Lord, uh, we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.